to the last ever show of A View from the Ditch on Quarantine FM. I'm joined by my co-host, as always, William Dalton. I'm James Larkin. And we're also joined by um, policy advisor in Leinster House, an environmental activist and an environmental scholar, all in one, Brian Marin. Hello, Brian. Hello. Thanks for having me on. No bother at all. Like I said, it's our, our final show, but don't worry, dear listeners, we'll be um, migrating onto uh, a podcast platform that, well, not, but we're already there, but we'll be exclusive to that podcast platform and we'll be um, rolling out every weekend uh, and you'll be able to listen into uh, everything we've got to offer. And you never know, might, this new um, format might, might give us freedom, you know, to uh, do all sorts of crazy things. What do you think, William? Maybe, perhaps too much freedom. Yeah, well, I don't know. I've, I've been crying out for artistic freedom. I think uh, the shackles of an hour are going to be thrown off and I'm going to uh, paint the town red. God help us. <laughs> Anywho, yeah. on to the important matters of the day. How's it going? What, what, what do you want to talk about? What, what's been going on during the week? Well, we spoke before on this program about the rather histrionic back and forth about whether Micheál Martin should go to Washington for the annual visit with the with the U.S. president. As it happened, he wasn't invited. It was a virtual meeting. Yeah, I was about to say it was a bit more. It wasn't much more of a back and forth as a just back with no no forth. Well, I mean, it was yeah, a back and on the, on the U.S. side. Yeah, well, it was a back and forth between Irish political parties uh, to some extent. But anyway, as it happened, it was academic because the, it had to happen virtually. Um, people will have seen this slightly kind of strange and awkward spectacle of Joe Biden sitting in the Oval Office beside an angled screen on which uh, Michal Martin's Yeah, it was weird the way he was kind of sitting beside the screen, whereas Michal Martin was kind of facing towards it in the classic, you know, video conference style. Meanwhile, uh, I suppose it was like the way you'd have it in, it's like when the president does meet the Irish teacher and that they are side by side for the cameras. That's right. Um, So I guess that was the thinking. Yes. Uh, th- so, in other words, Martin was both facing the audience, the press, and uh, and mm. Biden, although he was on a screen. He was beside, if people haven't seen it, he was, the screen was beside a bust of Martin Luther King, and uh, there was the bowl of shamrock. Um, so, Michal Martin was probably looking front on at himself on the screen, and Biden would probably thought this. No, presumably he was looking at an image of Biden, I would hope. Anyway, I wanted to talk about the whole idea of the White House, of the White House visit. Uh, it's become an annual event, but it's only relative. Well, um, yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't know that I am particularly. But anyway, you have some. You have the whole thing about the debate about whether Martin should go is you should, some people telling that you had some people saying it was absolutely essential that he go, and you had others saying he mustn't go. It's irresponsible with COVID, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's only a fairly recent. A development that it became an annual event. Uh, the first 
Taoiseach apparently to go over to the White House and present a bull of shamrock was John A. Costello in 1956, who uh, presented a Waterford Glass bowl of shamrock to Eisenhower. Then President Sean T. O'Kelly was there in 1959. But mostly it was the ambassadors that, that presented the bowl until the 1980s when Garrett Fitzgerald met Reagan and Charles Howe also did. But it only became an annual fixture during the tenure of um, Albert Reynolds, of all people, in 1993. Obviously, that was 1993 was during the crucial phase of the peace process. So, you know, that was the context of, of Reynolds talking to Clinton. So there were actually important substantive matters for the Taoiseach and the president of the US to be discussing then. And every subsequent Taoiseach uh, then has made the trip. Yeah, it's been interesting to see the, the worry in the in the amongst the politicians and even amongst the media. Like the media really love these this trip. And there was a big sense of worry around the idea that this might the fact that you know the tradition is being broken might uh, lead to an everlasting breakage. Like they might say, ah sure look Maybe stay in Ireland next year. Sure, it suits both of us, really, doesn't it? At Michal. And he'll say, no, no. Ah, it does, though, doesn't it? It suits both of us. Yes, I think that was also the sense during the Trump administration where there were a lot of calls for Enda Kenny and then Leo Varadkar to boycott the meeting. But the argument at the time was, well, if they do it, then you, uh, they might not get invited during subsequent administrations and you have to respect the office. And people may remember uh, Leo Varadkar's visit in, in 2018 to uh, see Trump on Paddy's Day when he made a comment about helping Trump with a planning issue in 2014. Trump had bought Dunbeg Golf Course and Varadkar was um, tourism minister at the time. And Varadkar claimed to have intervened on Trump's behalf in a planning application. There was a wind farm uh, looking for planning in the area, and I think I'm actually going to we're actually going to hear a clip of that. So at the other end of the phone was um, was Donald Trump uh, saying to me that he'd bought this resort in Ireland uh, in County Clare, this beautiful golf resort called Dune Beg, uh, but there was a problem nearby. Somebody was trying to build a wind farm. Uh, and that, of course, could have a real impact on tourism and the beauty of the landscape. Uh, so I endeavoured to do what I could do about it, and I rang the county council and uh, inquired about the planning permission, uh, and subsequently the planning permission was declined, uh, and the wind farm was never built, uh, thus the landscape um, uh, being preserved. Uh, and the president has very kindly given me credit for that, uh, although I do think it would, probably would have been refused anyway, but I'm very happy to take, <laughs> I'm very happy to take credit for it if the president is going to, uh, going to offer it to me. There we are. That is, but it's kind of what I expect of every meeting. It's just this kind of groveling sycophancy to the president and the office. Like that is a particularly bad case, but it seems to be just an opportunity to kind of kind of beg for favor. Obviously, in the '90s, with the Good Friday Agreement, there was more substantial things to be discussed, but. There's something kind of pathetic about it at the same time. But I suppose to bring it back to this week, again, yeah, Martin was very deferential 
to Biden, no more than you would expect. But I suppose people would argue, well, there are substantive matters at the moment, given Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol and all that. You're not well, buying a brand. Like, with the, I guess so much media time has just been taken up by the vaccine and this begging for extra supply. It seems mm. like it's not actually bilateral negotiations between two equal partners. It's going cap in hand. Can we please get some special treatment because we're Irish? And in the line of, can we get special treatment for our immigrants? Never mind that you're locking up children on the border. It's, can we get our undocumented people to get some special favor? Well, there was big, um, uh, you know, bilateral ish talks about, you know, with Brexit and, and the Northern Irish Protocol. Yeah. I think there's probably a bit of both going on. Well, if you look at the, there's a joint statement that they, they, um, issued Biden and Martin and it's pretty uh, banal stuff about the, the pandemic response like uh, cooperation in the UN Security Council and then there's this section about the Good Friday Agreement where they say that they're unequivocally committed uh, which again is, is pretty uncontroversial like a, everyone on all sides um, says claims to support the Good Friday Agreement. But Biden has... That's not the case, is it? Doesn't one party renege on the Good Friday Agreement? Well, loyalist, certainly loyalist <laughs> groups recently, yes, have said they no longer support it, of course, yeah. Uh, so I shouldn't say everyone, yeah. Uh, and of course, the DUP never supported it to begin with. Um, but it should be said that Biden has managed to piss off unionists I know that comes a shock, uh, but there, there was this other meeting between Kamala Harris and uh, Arlene Foster and Michelle O'Neill at which Biden was present, um, where Harris and Biden voiced support for the Northern Ireland Protocol, which entails an Irish Sea trade border, which, as far as unionists are concerned, is you know unacceptable, and uh, so. Certain unionist circles are upset now and they're saying, like there was a quote from the Northern journalist Sam McBride and he said, uh, the Biden administration has made clear that it is taking sides in the dispute over the, over the Irish sea border and it is not on unionism's side. Yeah, and sure that that was kind of evident. Like, didn't the unionists, isn't there some like video or picture of uh, Unionist politicians like with a vote Trump sign or you know up Trump or something like that. Sammy Wilson and uh, Ian Paisley Jr. and and those guys were yeah vocal supporters of Trump's re-election campaign. So it's yeah it's not that surprising. And no. Biden just is, is so I don't know. He's, he's certainly interested in his Irish her heritage. Um, put it. He he is yeah well. I, he keeps bringing it up and, and he, he does seem to have a genuine pride in it, etc. But it, it it is interesting, you know, will, you know, what, what is the significance of, of the, the White House visit, you know, in concrete terms, you know? Mm. Anyway, I think we should possibly move on. The other thing that caught your eye was the, uh, well, which do you want to talk about first? The the protests about COVID restrictions or Irigi? 
yeah, so I, I wanted to mention the fact that RTE has had to pay out €20,000 to the political party Irigi after they were falsely accused on primetime of murder by the the right-wing commentator John McGurk. People will be familiar with John McGurk as he used to be kind of a regular enough guest on Tonight with Vincent Brown whenever it was felt they needed a a representative of the ultra-right wing. And uh, he actually was a, was a candidate in the 2011 general election, John McGurk, under the Alliance uh, New Vision, which, listeners, just a bit of trivia here, w- was the same banner that Luke Ming Flanagan was elected under. Really? That's mad. Yeah, so it was quite a, a loose political uh, umbrella organization and then he was the um, spokesperson for save the eighth that's right or well was it save the eighth or was it love both or i i tend to make there were several was it yeah there were several different no campaigns yeah the anti-abortion campaign anyway um a controversial figure john mcgurk i don't think i'm um at risk of contradiction saying that he said uh he was talking he was on prime time talking about essentially he was brought on to defend the anti-lockdown uh, demonstrations which uh, became violent a few weeks ago on Grafton Street and he was kind of making you know both sides argument by by talking about left-wing extremism and and he mentioned Irigi uh, saying that they they endorsed terrorism and that they had been responsible for uh, the killing of a journalist uh, Larry McKee and he was obviously totally mistaken in saying that. And so RTE have had to pay uh, 20 grand uh, for because that was defamatory. Um, but our friend John McGurk has, uh, after initially issuing an apology on Twitter, um, has essentially issued a come at me call to Irigi last night. Or not oh. last night, Thursday night. Uh, what, what, what exactly did he say? Have you got that in front of you there? Um, Irigi, for those who don't know, is a left-wing Republican party. It was a split from Sinn Féin around 2006. And um, it has had some councillors elected before, never any national representatives. And I think the name translates as Let Us Rise. Yes, well... Very shocked to be able to translation there. Nice work. Probably should be doing the show in Irish. Anyway, so what he said was, uh, first of all, he said I'd like to reiterate my apology for for you know mistaking the two groups, and um, but then and then shares some articles uh, about Irigi being involved in criminal activity, and they're from the Independent.ie. Um, and he says he regrets that RTE uh, decided to settle. Um, and he said if they sued him, uh, his position would be that they do not have a reputation to defame. Uh, they are an extremist group which has engaged in repeated criminality. He mixed them up with another in a genuine error. So, like I said, I come at me to Irigi. Right, yeah, so he is very much sticking to his guns there. Um, but, it, yeah, 
I mean, I think it goes back to a sort of a false equivalence between the far right and what John McGurk is, is calling the far left. Um, there are, because these anti-lockdown rallies have involved or been partially organised by far right organisations like the Irish Freedom Party and, and the National Party. Though I do think there is a danger in uh, throwing uh, the lot in with the same group when it comes to those protests. Well, I don't think everyone who goes to those demonstrations is on the far right themselves. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah, but I, 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 but those organisations, those organisations are involved. Like people will have seen. So Paddy's Day um, last Wednesday, there were several demos. There was one outside RTE and there was one in Herbert Park which kind of referred to as itself as a mental health event. So one of the speakers at a lot of these anti-lockdown events is, is Dolores Cahill who is um, a an academic at the School of Medicine at UCD and she's also chair of the far-right Irish Freedom Party. And um, I see that the uh, UCD Students' Union has called for an investigation into her conduct, um, saying she's propagated... She's been since moved from a teaching a module for first-year medicine. She's been taken off that, I think, as of, as of yesterday, Friday. Saw that, yeah. So, I don't think that's that's been announced. Um, but... Yeah, she's propo- pr- promoting kind of fairly bonkers uh, ideas about masks and uh, the idea of a kind of a globalist conspiracy, uh, saying things like oxygen-deprived people are easier to manipulate. And uh, there was one, I think, again, uh, um, illustrative uh, poster at one of these demos uh, with the phrase... COVID is the excuse, communism is the reason. There seems to have been a lot of people getting sucked into that or provoked by that uh, poster on Twitter. And most of the conversation I saw swirled around uh, importing American politics verbatim. Um, People were getting up in arms about that. But uh, there was... One comment by the Foggy Jew on Twitter, pointing out that communism here is a dog whistle for those pesky Jewish communists or Jews yeah. in general. Excuse my ignorance, but can you can what what is the uh, connection there? Well, one connection would be there was an old fascist conspiracy theory that that the Russian Revolution was it was a like a jewish plot they referred to judeo-bolshevism okay yeah and it was part of nazi propaganda because i certainly with the globalist conspiracy that's the kind of classic uh one i associate with anti-semitism you know um that often they often coalesce those those two uh you mentioned the the conflation of far left and far right, or just kind of the two sidesing of that, that they're as bad as you get like, Before coming on, I took a look at the dull record to see how many times the far right has been mentioned. I and mean, I just look at, at the last 10, 
And of course, the people you'd expect to be talking about the rise of the far right, you have Paul Murphy, Breed Smith, Mick Barry, and Richard Boy Barrett. Uh, you also have some Sinn Féin reps, Paul Gavin, Ben Boylan, and Rada Cronin. But then you've got some unusual people in the list. You have Matty McGrath, kind of accidentally makes it onto the list of the top 10 people to mention the far right, because he said that Fine Gael is so far right they can't see the left in reference to their policy on the carbon tax. Uh, so like he was kind of accidentally mentioning the far right. Uh, and Aon O'Riordan for the Labour Party mentioned the far right in relation to access to education. He said that everyone agrees that equality is a good thing in terms of education, no matter if you're far left or far right. So that's wow. the analysis on the left. I don't know if he misspoke or if he actually believes that. Also, Thomas Pringle is talking about the far right, I should mention. Wasn't there an incident recently enough where, I can't remember, was it Leo Varadkar or Michal Martin said something along the lines of the far left being the same as the far right in the doll? Two things come to mind. Uh, Leo Varadkar speaking to Pierce Doherty and Michal Martin talking to Richard Boyd Barrett. Yes. Yeah, so was I, it when Leo was speaking to uh, uh, Pierce Doherty, it was in relation to the Village magazine, was that it? That you shouldn't give credence to these far right or far left conspiracy theories in relation to his allegations of corruption. That was what was in the record there. And I believe Michal Martin did make that comparison, yes, to saying that the left were not too dissimilar to the far right. So that's what's known as the horseshoe theory of political ideology oh, and of course but, we but, have, but um, i should i wouldn't say sorry it's referred to as the horseshoe theory but to call it a theory is to give it more credibility than it deserves we should possibly move on to introduce our other guest today returning guest michelle gavin shop steward in waterford the debenhams dispute goes on of course it'll be coming up on a year now since the pickets began and yeah so obviously the the debenhams workers were demanding that they be paid the negotiated redundancy package the mediator kevin foley came back in december and said that no longer has any legal standing and they proposed this like three million euro training fund the members of the union voted overwhelmingly rejected those proposals said said they were insulting so the strike goes on. One recent development was that workers' possessions were taken out of the their lockers in the stores in Newbridge and Mahon Point in Cork. So for people who don't know, workers had gone home on the 23rd of March last year and then were subsequently told by a generic email that the stores weren't going to reopen. So they had left personal belongings in the stores. They were never able to go back. And so the liquidator, KPMG, it was reported last week I'd send people in to remove their personal belongings in Newbridge and um, and Cork. So there was a statement from the shop stewards uh, protesting that. Uh, that's the background. Anyway, I spoke to Michelle about where things stand now with the Debenhams dispute. So I'm delighted to be rejoined by Michelle Gavin. Um, there hasn't been as much media coverage lately, but it's coming up on a year now that 
former Debenhams workers have been out on strike. Uh, the dispute very much goes on, rain or shine. And uh, the last time we spoke, Michelle, the proposals by the mediator, Kevin Foley, had just come out. Uh, this three million so-called training fund. Since then, it's been over. The proposals were overwhelmingly rejected uh, by members. Ninety-one percent voted uh, against it and against them. And uh, a statement by shop stewards at the time described the proposals as inadequate and insulting, and demanded as a minimum that the government convert that three million training fund into cash. And also argued at the time that acceptance would have set a bad precedent for other workers. I wonder if you could tell us why those proposals were so strongly rejected. Well, they were so strongly rejected because, as you said yourself, we felt it was insulting. And also what we felt is those courses are there already, you know, for people that are unemployed, um, whether it was in the pandemic time or not, those courses are available for people to avail of if they've been made unemployed. We also felt that we have a lot of skills and, you know what I mean? Um, so to say that, you know, you, they were given this three million for upskilling, like we just felt it was very insulting. Like, you know, I would consider myself a very skilled worker. I have lots of skills, you know, that I have a, um, accumulated over 27 years. You know, we always tried to keep abreast with whatever way things were changing. So we all felt we had um, many skills that we could offer. And um, also, I suppose you have to take into consideration as well the age bracket uh, for a lot of the long serving staff. You know, some of them were coming up near retirement age and um, an upskilling course wasn't of any benefit to them. You know, start your own business, career guidance, none of that stuff is any benefit to these people. You know, so basically we felt that Hall, Martin and them weren't offering us anything really. Do you know what I mean? So I think that's why it was over um, well, um, rejected, to be honest with you. So, um, like, we're like everybody else, you know, we're going into liquidation and we just felt that we had been left down by the government and to a degree, maybe the union, uh, to be honest, because if the Duffy Cattle Report had been implemented, we wouldn't have ended up in this situation. Um, our company could not have transferred their assets out of this country and they would we could have fought to have a redundancy package that was already in place paid and that's what our issue is you know we feel that the government do owe um, us if not anything else morally they owe us because they left um, a report sit on a shelf for six years that should have been implemented years ago and uh, so, like, that's the big issue, you know, and I think a lot of the workers felt that way, you know, that that if that had been implemented when it, after Cleary's, we would never have ended up in the situation that we ended up in. Yes, but of course, the government, Michael Martin in particular, are arguing that he's saying that it can't be. The, the training fund can't be converted into cash. He, he's, he cites kind of concerns about precedent that the government would have to pay out any time a firm um, uh, went into liquidation. And he said, he used this phrase that own, the government is the only party that has stepped up and paid paid the statutory redundancy. Yeah, he did say all that, but like, he can turn around and say that um, 
the only party that stepped up and paid was the government. But I contributed to my statutory. I paid my taxes for 34 years because prior to Debenhams, I worked somewhere else. So in total, I have worked for 34 years. For 34 years, I paid my social welfare. And that's what contributes towards the, um, you know, um, statutory redundancy. So I personally feel I made a great contribution to my own um, statutory redundancy. And yes, it is great that it's there, don't get me wrong. But uh, you think Hall Martin had done us a favour. He hasn't. He's only following the law that's already there. And um, so they were obliged to step up and pay. You know what I mean? And that's what they did. Yes, indeed. But um, they could have turned that three million into cash if they chose to do so, in my opinion. And a lot of the rest of us feel the same way. At the end of the day, if if you want to find a solution to something, you can. We were put into this situation. Again, I'll come back to the Duffy Cal report. If that had been implemented, we wouldn't have ended up in the situation we ended up. Uh, the way I feel personally is that our liquidation is slightly different because we weren't given a chance um, as other liquidations would be. If you even take Arcadia, they have been given a chance to wind down their business properly. You know what I mean? Um, even the Debenhams in the UK are being allowed winded down properly. But the doors were shut on the Debenham stores in Ireland. And that's it. We were never allowed back in. So we didn't get that opportunity. Like um, all our stuff is still in there. We weren't allowed to take anything with, but we didn't take, not that we weren't allowed to take anything with us. We didn't know we wouldn't be going back. So when we left on the 23rd of March, um, we didn't realise we would never open again. So we just left things as normal, you know. <laughs> we all had bits and pieces, as you would in any business. Um, you leave, you know, bits and pieces in and for convenience maybe, but um, we didn't know we'd never get an opportunity to go back in and get those again. Do you know what I mean? So I think our liquidation is different even in that regard, which I don't think Hall Martin took into consideration either. Like, if you want to put it this way, we were technically locked out of our company. We were locked out of our workplace you know so um if the government were willing to find a solution they could have found it i don't believe that and i don't agree with his he just doesn't want to because we're not relevant to him and that's another thing we just feel totally left down by him you know um a thousand predominantly women workers just left there for 12 months and um, you know what i mean i just he just has totally left us down. So when you see the banner in Cork, Hall Martin, our Taoiseach has left us down. They're very much right. They, he has left us down. He's left us down badly. Even in the 12 months that we have been um, out on strike, that Duffy Carl report could have been implemented in that 12 months. And it hasn't been. And that would have protected anybody coming after us. You know, I know Arcadia are in that situation now. And that would have even protected them if he had implemented it in the 12 months that we are out on strike and they didn't even bother doing that. They could have ring fenced then our three million and that would have saved setting the precedent as he puts it. Do you know what I mean? As, all, as well as that, uh, William, not huge company, not a huge lot of companies would have um, enhanced redundancy packages in place. So, you know, this is not a huge big thing that he's trying to make it out to be. You know what I mean? So um, we don't seem to be important enough to the government unless they're looking for our vote. That's how, what I've taken from all this. 
they're all very nice to you when they're knocking at your door looking for your vote. But after that, then they have what they want and they don't seem to care. You know, workers in this country make up the vast majority of, you know what I mean? We, we keep this country afloat, regardless of what they think. Our taxes, our what you call it, is what keeps this country running. You know, and I just think we deserve a bit of respect and a bit of courtesy. And that's all we ever asked for, you know what I mean? To be treated right. We didn't cause this situation. We were thrown into it. The least he could have done is, um, you know, try to find a solution that would have been good or would have suited everybody. Yeah, and I suppose what you've got from the government is a lot of words of sympathy, but yeah. statements that uh, there's, their hands are tied, there's nothing they can do. But for you, it's a matter of political will. Yeah, exactly. That's how I feel personally anyway. And I know a lot of the others feel the same. It is political will. Like there's a solution to every problem if you want to find it. I've been saying that from the beginning, you know, it's just to find that solution. You know, I understand about precedent and all that, but at the end of the day, we're in unprecedented times. He didn't seem to take that into consideration either. I don't think we would have ended up in this situation if the pandemic hadn't hit. You know, it suited Debenham's needs that when they close those doors, right, we have an opportunity here and now, we just won't open, you know? And uh, so everything is unprecedented for us, you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, so I wonder if you could update us on the dispute recently. Obviously, as you say, it's coming up on a year now. Uh, the 8th of March marked 333 days and the pickets have gone on. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us where things stand. What What is the mood like and, uh, you know, in terms of popular support and in terms of the dispute with the, with the liquidators? Well, I suppose last week when we heard that our stuff was being moved um, without us there, I suppose we were angry because we were always led to believe at some stage we would be led back in to take our stuff. Hmm. As I said to you earlier, it wasn't our fault that our stuff was in there. We had no choice in that matter. And um, so I suppose we're angry. Um, you know, in all of this as well, kind of, William, there's just such long periods of time that goes by where you're not even consulted or given any information. And that was another situation with the government, like, and another reason I think that um, you got such a big no for the vote is we were never given a breakdown of what this three million fund is going to do, you know, who could avail of it, what it was going to fund, what courses we could avail of and all that kind of stuff. And it's the same with the liquidator. Like he said they'd let us in to pick up his stuff, but they never gave us a breakdown of when that would happen, how it would happen. You know, we were never led to believe that our stuff would be thrown into plastic bags and our locker number thrown on it. And uh, it's stored somewhere that we don't even know where it's stored. You know, I know Mandate have written to uh, the liquidator and asked him, could we have a meeting? You know, the shop stewards on the negotiating team. He hasn't even come back to give us a date on that, you know. And um, so I suppose we, we, we still just feel angry that in all of this, there's been just absolutely little or no respect towards, shown towards um, a large group of predominantly women workers. And I have to say that's a disgrace. 
you know, respect doesn't cost anything. You know, it really doesn't. And um, to find out uh, uh, secondhand that your stuff has been taken away and you don't even know where it is, I have to say it's an absolute disgrace, you know. Um, I think what happened in Newbridge and Man Point, those doors were empty. He did tell us that around Christmas time, the liquidator, mm. uh, that the stock had been removed and, 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 and brought to a warehouse. I think what has been removed out of there in the last few months was maybe the concession shops. And uh, so now those stores are empty. But what we had a big concern was like people had personal things in those lockers. You know, there's money in some. And, um, you know, it, it's just very, um, I just feel that even themselves very vulnerable to remove stuff from somebody's locker without them being there. Then you have all the stuff with GDPR. You know, we have our personnel files in there. You know what I mean? Um, even past workers that are gone, all their personnel files are still there as well. You know, um, what would concern me in that regard is you have bank details, you have um, illness records, you know, you have all that kind of stuff. And uh, if that was just dumped and got into the wrong hands, like, you know what I mean? Again, it's down to respect and, and, and you know, just showing respect for people that worked in a company for over 20 odd years. You know, the very least they could have done is organize something um, for us to go and just collect our stuff. You know, like even the stuff at the till points, like all those I think are gone. And people have stuff at till points, like that's all gone, dumped, you know. So mm. it might not be of any value to KPMG, but it was a value to us. It was our stuff. As I said, this was none of this was of our making. We couldn't do anything about it. Those doors were locked. We were never left back in. And I don't think any of them, KPMG or the government, have ever taken that into consideration. Right. And I suppose, as I said, the pickets have gone on, but maybe there, it doesn't seem to be the same kind of um, media coverage uh, lately. I wonder uh, what's your sense of uh, popular support has that waned at all no I think the public are still very supportive of us you know what I mean we're on the pickets they call to us you know they pass by us we do get a lot of support in that regard and people are fantastic even I know in, in our town in Waterford you know some of the small businesses they're great you know what I mean um they come over and you know what I mean they do they, they, they're very supportive so I, I think the support is still there you know, I know maybe it's not in the media, but I suppose when you're 12 months down, you know, like we did have a bit of coverage there again for International Women's Day, uh, you know, 333 days as we were. So um, I suppose, unfortunately, when as time goes on, it, it does, you know, it's not at the forefront of the media at that point. Do you know what I mean? So. And, and yet there is still there is still leverage for the workers here in that the stock is still there. Yeah, as far as we're aware, the stock is still in all um, in the stores apart from Newbridge and um, the, three the three stores that they had said uh, before Christmas that they had emptied, um, that, that, that being Man Point, Newbridge and, and Tala. But as far as we were aware, all the other stores still have their stock in them. So yes, it is the leverage that's still there to our advantage, I hope.
<laughs> so obviously, having you know, having come this far, uh, you're you're not going to give up the fight now. What what are you calling on uh, the government to do at this stage? We're still calling on the the government to find a way to turn that three million training fund into three million cash because at the end of the day, you know, training fund won't pay anybody's bills for them. And that's what we were left with, some of us, you know, um, when we were liquidated. So we're just asking, you know, to, to, to take into consideration what has happened to us as a group of people and that in unprecedented times that we were the first to be liquidated and we were the first to be affected by this. We had our bills, we weren't prepared for it. So at least the three million would help with that. And it would help people to settle, you know, and pay off what they can and move on with their life. And it would give them an opportunity to do that. And then if they choose, they can avail of the courses that are already there available for people that are unemployed. Do you know? And, and as you say, uh, this is not just about you, you know, about former Debenhams workers, but it's about the implications for all workers. Yeah, it is. Like, I, if nothing else, I think, um, like, don't get me wrong, I would like to get um, something out of the three million. But as well as being about that, it's also about the Duffy Cal report. And I think it's a disgrace that it was left sitting on a shelf um, since 2016. And um, that should be implemented. And they haven't even moved that for much forward with that either. You know what I mean? So it is for other workers. This is about other workers as well as us. And um, I hope other workers are more aware now that, you know, they need to protect themselves in liquidated situations. And that, again, as I said, all we were ever looking for is a fair balance. We didn't get that from our company. So, you know, both workers and companies, you need to have a fair balance between both in, in, in all parts of your worker life, I guess, but uh, definitely in liquidation situations because it's not right that a company can just get up and walk away and leave you, you know, high and dry, to be honest with you. And um, so, yeah, it is very, very important um, for all workers. You know what I mean? That's one thing I think we have achieved um, that we have highlighted, you know, how badly treated workers are in liquidation situations. So hopefully if we can get the Duffy Carl report through, that's something we will have achieved. And I will feel proud of that, you know, to be honest with you. Yeah. And just maybe finally, Michelle, for those who, you know, and I think it's most people are sympathetic and, and supportive uh, for members of the public out there, if they wanted to show their support or maybe put pressure on those who have power to, to do something, how how would you suggest they, they do it? Well, they could email their TDs because that's where the pressure is going to have to come with the Duffy Carl report. So if, if they contact their TDs and tell them like, well, they want this implemented and they want to know the progress of it and how, where is it at and to keep up the pressure, you know what I mean? Um, because that's that's the only way we can do it. You know, you voted for these people. They told you they would help you and look after you. That's what you put them there for. So ask them to do that. 
ask them to keep putting the pressure on me, Hall Martin, and to keep. I know they set up a forum for the Duffy Calvo report. Ask them where that's at. Ask them when they'll have an answer and how you know how soon can they see it being implemented. And that way they can help a lot. You know what I mean? They can really help a lot that way. And it's not just for us, it's for themselves. You know, it's for themselves as well. Indeed. Well, um, thanks for coming and talking to us again today. Not at all. Thanks for having me again, William. It was nice to speak to you. So now we're going to chat with um, our friend Brian Marin, who uh, is a long-time listener, first-time caller, um, and our second Doll Insider. Uh, he's a policy chat. advisor in. <laughs> he's a policy advisor in the Doll, and he's going to chat to us about um, some environmental issues that have been on the legislative table over the past few weeks. What's been happening with the? Uh, Climate Action Bill. I believe this is the centrepiece of the Green Party's uh, hard-won programme for government. Yeah, so a big part of the bill is that they're going to include a measure that would ban the importation of fracked liquid natural gas or LNG. And the, gov the government is uh, claiming this as a big victory, but some people uh, in the environmental movement would point out that it only goes part of the way there. It wasn't the big victory that it was claimed to be because it's kind of like a big asterisk. They're still able to import natural gas that is non-liquefied natural gas. So that's just a big caveat there. They're only banning the importation of some natural gas here. Um, so, yeah, when you hear Eamon Ryan and other Greens talking about it, you'll hear them stressing the fact that they're only banning the liquefied natural gas importation. But, and that's basically supporting the narrative that the EU is peddling, that natural gas is going to be part of our mix for the next few decades, that it's a, quote, bridging fuel Um to bring us to renewable energy and that we're going to have to keep emitting uh, carbon from natural gas over the next few decades and build infrastructure for that importation and build out our natural gas infrastructure, thus locking in carbon lock-in is the term that they refer to. So uh, a minor a minor victory for the environmental movement, but not what was promised. Uh, well, it kind of is what was promised, but it's just that they pretended that this was going to be such a massive uh, that it that it, that it was the be all and end all, but it's not. The, the The fight will go on after the banning of fracked natural gas. Uh, and recently, in the news, the uh, the company that was responsible for the Shannon LNG project, um, they are going to continue with their plans even without government support. So, yeah, there is a lobby going on at the moment uh, to make sure that these provisions are included in the bill because the bill, just to give a bit of an overview of the history of the bill, it was a deal breaker for the Greens going into government and it does seem like a good thing. Just to explain the climate bill a little bit, it doesn't, for the most part, have any specific provisions related to how to reduce emissions. You're not going to see 
things like uh, increasing public transport in there or uh, retrofitting or uh, increasing renewables. It's more of a governance bill where they're setting the rules of the game for how Ireland is going to set targets, um, for example, being carbon neutral by 2050, and how they're going to go about planning to achieve that target and how each department is going to set goals and how they're going to, or just mandating rather, that each government department will uh, achieve certain reduction targets and it'll be up to them to come up with the policy solutions for how to achieve that. So it is kind of unusual that this is a policy measure that is going to be included in it. Uh, so the bill was a centerpiece uh, for the Green Party going into, into government and they really wanted to get it rushed in in the first 100 days. Eamon Ryan committed to, he got it produced within uh, 100 and maybe three days, I think. And then he said, gave it to the uh, Oireachtas Joint Committee and said, I want it back within two weeks. And then there was a push on from the environmental sector to do Eamon Ryan's bidding and get it back within two weeks and not give it any oversight. The committee held it for much longer than that and found that it was completely not up to the standard. It was weaker than the Fine Gael bill uh, that had been previously implemented or introduced. Um, and, Is that a consensus uh, amongst the committee? That's pretty shocking. On, on certain measures, it was definitely weaker than uh, the Fine Gael bill, uh, I think. Some That's of mad. The language was that you should pursue and achieve a target. Yeah. Uh, I think it had mandated local authorities to pursue and achieve um, in uh, Richard Bruton's bill, but then in Eamon Ryan's bill, that had been watered down to pursue. All you have to do is pursue, uh, which of course is legally not binding. That's a big issue with the bill: is that these targets are only as good as the bill can force you to follow through on those targets. So without. Yeah, and, e and even if they are binding measures, I always think, you know, especially if it's a long term one like 2030 or even 2050, like they're laughable because the next government can just come in and repeal them. Um, I think it is a little bit harder to repeal legislation like this, uh, primary legislation. I think the idea is that you can you can be sure that it'll last a little bit longer. And they, they want to, of course, get broad consensus uh, and do this right so that uh, it won't be repealed. So that there, there, there is buy-in and it won't be repealed. Yes. But it's just that the one of the biggest um, problems with the Green uh, Party's ambitions is that a lot of their a lot of the, their plans are going to happen essentially either in the towards the end of the term of this government or essentially after this government. Um, falls. And that ties in with Fine Gael delaying this bill because one of the other sticking points that's been highlighted is that the bill or the committee recommended to the minister that he include a target for 2030 to reduce emissions by 51%. Now, it's another discussion whether 51% is an adequate ambition and whether that is really ambitious. But to put it in on a statutory footing would make it somewhat binding. Fine Gael, and namely Richard Bruton, is putting their foot down and saying, and is on the record saying that it was not agreed that this would go on a statutory footing. So they're basically admitting, we said we would do this, but we never said we would actually be legally 
accountable to following through on this. Um, and that is, uh, that's what the sticking point is at the moment with Fine Gael. The other sticking point is that Patrick Costello has thrown Spanner in the woods by <laughs> suing or going to court. So you might expect Fine Gael to be dragging their heels a little bit. So yeah, there's the Patrick Costello issue. There's the emissions target issue that they, although they have said is that they want to achieve 51%, they don't want to be held accountable to that. Uh, and there's the measures to ban fracking. Eamon Ryan has certainly taken a, a long time. If he was going to ignore the committee's recommendations, he probably would have come back by now because he was in such a hurry before Christmas to get it done within 100 days and to rush the committee through its oversight. If he was going to ignore the committee, why not just ram it through? So it appears that he is taking on board some of the dozens and dozens and dozens of recommendations that the committee made to improve the bill. How many will he take on board? That remains to be seen. Will they be adequate to be Paris compliant? Almost certainly not. Will they be adequate enough to, for Ireland to play its part to reduce its emissions in a climate just um, centric way? No, that's they, 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 that's just not within the bounds of where the the Overton window is way away from that. <laughs> so, yeah, it gets I depressing when you're talking to. But I assume he, I assume he, <laughs> I assume he would disagree with you, though. I assume he would say that that's that that given that that's the the reason he's in government is to meet the Paris uh, targets, you know, which aren't which a lot of people would argue aren't strong enough. Um, he surely would, yeah, surely would disagree with you there. I'm sure he would, and he would say this is Paris compliant like they all say it's going to be paris compliant i don't know how many of them have read the paris agreement but you're meant to pursue keeping it under make in great endeavors to keep it under 1.5 degrees the the action required to achieve that is staggering and we are just nowhere near that so of course they're going to say yes we need to uh, meet our international ambition, uh, uh, not ambitions, our obligations. Yeah. Obligations, uh, but they're they're just nowhere near talking about that. While at the same time saying that we're going to ban fracked gas uh, infrastructure to uh, import fracked LNG, but at, continue to allow normal and uh, conventionally drilled LNG to come in. That's no more LNG should be allowed. <laughs> That's that. No more fossil fuels. Leave them in the ground. They are not just mantras of the environmental movement. They, it's, it's what needs to be done to not cook the planet. Well, yes. On that sobering note, I think I think we have to leave it. So thanks for coming on the program, Brian. Cheers, Brian. That's it from us at A View From The Ditch and so ends our time on Quarantine FM. Although, as James said earlier, we will be carrying on podcasting. I have to thank our guests today, Michelle Gavin and Brian Marin, and all our previous guests, and Natalie Nikasaja and Irla O'Donnell for our theme music, and of course our dear leader, Anna Rose, 
without whom we wouldn't be having this conversation. Thanks for having us aboard. Thanks for listening. It's hard to think this eve of parting turns to sand of summer gone. When both our minds are warped with parting, break the thought of nights alone. Maybe I should turn in silence, tell myself I didn't care. Curse the thought of your existence, loving. Black Sun.